Hello and welcome to Got the Runs, the podcast with all the sexual chemistry of, I mean, with all the sexual chemistry of a chicken and a plum, you could just say. <laughs> Not <laughs> or, what I thought you going to go for. What did you th- a man and his, vi- uh, his uh, tar and or violin? <laughs> yep, depending on who you ask. Yep, sure. True. That's, a musician I mean, and a school teacher. Sure. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting choice that they make to pivot to the violin which we will get into yes <laughs> this week we are i guess more or less concluding our margen satrapy miniseries which i <laughs> certainly i didn't really certainly i didn't really realize that as like i was preparing for this episode it's like oh like she just stops making comics at this point which is very strange and maybe we'll talk about that closer to the end but like the fact that she just like goes into movies because like the Persepolis movie comes out three years after this, and I assume it took that long to make because it's an animated movie, and animated movies take a very long time to make. But it's crazy that like she's just like, yep, I'm a director now. <laughs> I mean, she does do other, like, we discussed off mic about how we removed the sigh and, uh, and I think another book because uh, as we learned they are in fact children's books not comics but she does do some other stuff some other literary stuff uh, and and continue illustrating but uh, but yeah it, as far as comics like she's punching punching the clock yeah this and the sigh is 2004 as well so like she does pretty much like cut off doing anything after i think 2006 because Nope, because that's a that's a translation of her work as well. So yeah, pretty much she she finishes after this point. So it is only fitting that we are here, the discussing uh, our last Marjan Satrapi episode. We are discussing Chicken with Plums, her 2004 graphic novel, and the subsequent 2011 film adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> we. This is this all makes sense. It's all in order. It's not weird that we did the Persepolis movie last week and are now doing this. This all makes sense. Um, makes sense. So where where do we want to start here? Uh, this is <sighs> that is the so much to lies the question. Um, well, let's uh, I, let's let's start at the beginning. Not really the beginning, but I'll just ask you up front: which did you prefer? Which version? Oh, okay. So I will say I think this is a bad movie. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a pretty good comic. Uh, I feel like she has a pretty high floor if this is like what I mean, ostensibly my least favorite of hers that we have read. Um, There's a lot of interesting things to dig into. Um, Let's start with the art. Why don't we? Uh, Because is the word that uh, came to mind for me. Yeah. That's absolutely true. Uh, so yeah, especially like the way she draws Nasir is. D- does Kate Beaton have a comic about Tesla? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it does look like how Kate Beaton would draw Tesla. Um, the, like it, it's very satrapy, but it does also like yeah, it's, it's she seems to have sure. she seems to have taken uh, some sort of influences from maybe just like more like classical cartooning, mm-hmm. like the way that she draws this one character. I think is it like his friend or a, a Ma- Manusher? 
is his name, I think. Uh, but he is drawn like very cartoonishly. Like he has like the big eyes and like the big nose and the little mouth. And like, mm-hmm. you know, I think Satrapi's art, I generally think of as like, it's not it's not cartoonish but it is simple yeah and then i think in this one she starts to lean a little bit more towards like conventional like cartoonish especially like it really depends on the character because i think the way she draws nasir and his wife are is like more conventional satrapy Mm -hmm. and then she'll portray some other characters more exaggeratedly yes and and you know might differ from panel to panel how realistically or unrealistically uh, any given character is being portrayed as the situation kind of calls for yeah um i guess let's let's uh circle back for a moment and do a quick plot summary just in case uh it is ex- an extremely short book it's, yeah it's quick easy easy to summarize yeah it's under 100 pages i w- i would it's not that easy to summarize though because it has a well, very interesting a, yeah there, i guess it's really that there's just like in terms of the essential plot details, there's not much more to it other than the elevator pitch, which is like a very accomplished musician's prized instrument is broken, and when he's unable to replace it, he decides to die. Uh, and eight late days after he makes that decision, is dead. And the book unfolds over the course of those eight days, where we kind of see his his life uh, and loves lost, and you know learn learn about him and his family, uh, and, and I guess some flash forwards as well, where. We see what becomes of his children. We learn that his wife is the one who broke his instrument and why. We see him kind of begin to question his uh, his decision to die right at the end, but uh, unfortunately too late. Uh, and then we see him die and his funeral. And that's really, you know, that's kind of all there is to it. You know, uh, that's, that's a very <laughs> surface level, obviously. Um, but in terms of kind of like what happens in the book, it's like, you know, that's pretty much what happens. Yes. And, and But I think, you know, I think probably the best place to start is that narrative structure, because I think it is very interesting. Like, it's certainly the most sort of ambitious uh, from like a, a, a literary perspective, I suppose, that mm-hmm. she has undertaken so far. And maybe that is sort of an inclination of like her leaning away from comics and more towards like literature and even film. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like the way that because we start with uh, with him going to the store, right, or to like to the <laughs> to the tar. Yes, in in the so in the book it's a tar, in the film it's a violin, and the book and the film mostly follow quite similar uh, paths. You know, there's there's a little more in the comic, but yeah. by and large they follow pretty much the same. So yeah, so we start with him going to purchase the tar. And then he sort of goes on this long journey and ends up finding a very expensive one that's like, you know, they say in a footnote that it's equivalent to a Stradivarius violin. And then he purchases that. He is unhappy with the way it sounds when he finally returns home. And that is when he makes his decision. And then we flash forward to his bear, his uh, funeral <laughs> and then back is, to these eight good. days. I, yeah, uh, that's I think that was like I, I was like, oh, like that's what this is where you know, you have his, you you see, like, he decides to die, mm-hmm. which is just a classic, I feel like, literary thing, yeah. where, like, <laughs> someone either decides to die or dies of heartbreak or just, like, basically, like, opts into death yeah. uh, is a good bit. Uh, but, yeah, and then, and then you cut directly to the burial, which is, like, a full-page spread, yes. and then you cut to the full page of the first day, and I was like, oh, this is uh, this is intriguing. Yeah. 
The synopsis of it, oh, it's not on the back, where is it? On the inside cover flap, I guess, uh, where it says that she turns the same keen eye that brought us Persepolis and embroideries to the heartrending story of her great uncle, a celebrated Iranian musician who gave up his life for music and love. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. <That's> yes, not... <laughs> is the appropriate response to that, where it, that makes him sound like a very noble character, which he's not. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's really quite the opposite. He gives like. He he doesn't really give up on love exactly, nor does he give up on music or his yeah, he, he doesn't really give up on any of those things except his life, which is mostly out of like spite, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I would uh, I would generally concur. Uh but yes, and you know, it's of course we, it's important to note that this is, you know, it takes place in Tehran, I believe. Uh, you know, it is about an Iranian character. Um do you want to talk about the movie and sort of the way that it approaches that? Because <laughs> I was like say, very artful transition to so I did run down the cast list. There are several uh, Middle Eastern actors in it, but only one who is actually Iranian, and several of the most prominent uh, roles are played by white people. Well, you do you know about Matthew Almarik, right? The best known to you, perhaps, as, as the, the villain from Quantum of Solace. Yes, <laughs> yes, precisely. Uh, he's also, you know, Wes Anderson movies. He was in The Diving Bell and The Butterfly, the yeah. film adaptation of that. So yeah, like I mean, a very, a very white <laughs> French actor, I, I believe. I could be wrong. I believe you're correct as well. I did read an interview with Satrapi where she was basically like, I can't believe we got him. It's so amazing. I can't imagine anyone else playing him. So it doesn't seem to really have been a consideration for her. I guess, like, I mean, culturally, it wasn't it wasn't really as much of a consideration at the time. Although, like, 2011... Yeah, you're kind, of, like um, you're kind of starting to push it. <laughs> he did appear as the father in Mother Schmuckers in 2021. Okay, good. I to think know. it's important to know. Oh, he, have you seen Sound of Metal? Mm-hmm. You should see Sound of Metal. He is he has a small role as like one of the lead characters' fathers, and he is pretty good in it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many <laughs> directions I want to go with the film. But to, yes, to your point, I think because you know, the, in the same way that she didn't want to make Persepolis a live action film because she didn't want to, uh, you know, I think her sense was that if it's a live action film, then it's a sort of, it's an othering where you're creating like, it's like, Oh look, it's Tehran. It's this exotic locale in the same way that a lot of movies, you know, present exotic locations. Mm -hmm. And that was something she wanted to avoid because she sort of wanted to allow the audience to feel grounded in a place that was sort of recognizable to some extent, right? right? Like she didn't want to present it as a foreign or an exotic land. Right. And I think that that is what they're going for as well in this film, because it's, I don't think it, they ever, do they ever say it's Tehran? Yes. Cause like, I, I remember, you know, the, the currency, they use the, the same, I forget the name. I apologize. Uh, but they, they use the same unit of currency, that they do in the book mm-hmm. when they're talking about how much the violin costs. They they do make a few passing references to Tehran and a couple of other geographical locations. Yes. Yeah, I did. I did start to tune out. I must confess. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so I think I think that they're sort of trying to present like a place that is not a, a real place exactly. Like there seems to be an effort towards this sort of fairy tale like yeah. atmosphere. Fairy tale is exactly what I was going to say as well, and like. Anytime 
that he is like outside of the city it's rendered in a very like like tim burton's willy wonka-esque <laughs> i was gonna say like what i calls to mind for me i was gonna say big fish which is also tim burton mm, yeah uh, but yeah i think i think but it like was bright, mostly bright shot colors and like you know like not super realistic isn't quite right but like heightened reality i guess is is how i would describe the way that they kind of make everything look when he's not basically in his room yeah it's certainly not shooting for verisimilitude it was filmed on sound stages and like on back lots in germany i believe um so that kind of you know that explains some of the look certainly but you know they're making some some pretty broad aesthetic swings as well like i i think the one of the most stark scenes in the movie is the uh the flashback to nasir ali's childhood where he is like you know he has this rivalry with his brother Mm -hmm. his brother is like the genius of the family and he Mm -hmm. is being castigated for being a troublemaker and they render it like they they use like weird dutch angles and like weird perspectives and then it's like like a black room with like natural light and just looks crazy (laughs) yeah it is and so that that's like the one i think of but one of several scenes that i thought suffered from comparison to the book for for me at least Mm -hmm. where i was like yeah this is also basically what happens in the book but like fails to somehow capture I don't know. I, I guess I was expecting with the film adaptation, and maybe I should have known better considering what we um, talked about, like everything with Persepolis, but I was expecting the film adaptation to kind of take some space to let some of those things breathe a little bit more if it was going to change things. But like, it really is pretty much like the things that they choose to expand on in that scene are like the least interesting <laughs> parts of that scene to like detail, like, it, like not only is Nasser Ali like the the worst student, but like he broke a window. <laughs> it's like oh, good, like good good to have that additional detail about like what what happened in this scene. Whereas I feel like the overall tenor of it, which is that like the principal has the class boo Nasser Ali and cheer Abdi, right. was like less impactful than the comic where they make it feel like he is literally in front of like the entire school as opposed to like this class of like 10 kids that's in the movie. Yeah, it's, they make, I think broadly speaking, what I didn't really like about the movie is like, it seemed to be, they seem to be more interested almost. Uh, we should mention it's, di- it's co-directed by Satrapi and the same co-director Vincent Perrineau who directed uh, Persepolis with her. Yes. And so I I went into this thinking that even like, uh, you know, the other day when you were watching it and you sent me a Snapchat, I was like, this is a live action movie. Because <laughs> I didn't I didn't realize, because uh, like, you know, the poster is like animated as well or hand drawn. And so I was like, this is a live action movie. And I think that it does kind of suffer from it being like essentially their debut live action film because they seem to be more interested in what they can do with the camera and what they can depict in terms of like mise-en-scene and cinematography than they are with the actual story. Mm-hmm. Well, it was funny to me because like we talked about how kind of the the like very painterly or heightened realism of the the backgrounds and kind of all of the outdoor scenes 
so it was funny when you sent me that and as i was watching it i was kind of like this one probably should be animated <laughs> like this one should be animated and and persepolis should probably like not should be because i get why she wanted to do um persepolis mm-hmm. live action but i'm like if i was going to choose which one of them to do in animation and which one to do in live action if she's like interested in kind of like being very expressionistic in an artistic way with this one then maybe it's the one that should be animated whereas persepolis like it not that it never took advantage of the fact that it was animated um but it is just sort of like a more this this story is so it's it's framed as kind of like a a biography or like a memoir but it really is like a magical realism like Mm -hmm. it's it's mostly fiction or or like kind of her artistic interpretation of things that she's heard like second or third hand about her family which to me i'm like that probably lends itself a little bit more to i can't remember the word but you know the (laughs) realm of animation (laughs) sure 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 the medium uh yeah, it's and I think that comes across in the comic as well because I think, you know, like I said, like there are you know, it's more cartoonish in its art style, but I think it's more cartoonish in its, you know, its overall like depictions and story as well. Like I think of we can talk about the scene with like the American, mm-hmm. uh, you know, his youngest <laughs> his one son who ends up like going to America and then <laughs> there's this whole saga with his his daughter who didn't know she was pregnant. Uh, you know, this predates I didn't know I was pregnant. So yeah. very prescient by Satrapi. Um, but yeah, and like, you know, like the way that in the movie, it's sort of depicted as like a grotesque take on an American sitcom, like American nuclear family sort of idea. Yeah. But even in the comic, like she is, you know, maybe she is that fat, but like she is rendered <laughs> like far larger than a person would be in either Persepolis or embroideries. Like, yeah, you know, definitely. she takes more like cartoonish liberties and like exaggerates, um, you know, her depictions of characters. And so I think that, that you know, that sort of lends itself maybe to a more, uh, a less like grounded style. And then, you know, you end up getting this movie, which I think, <laughs> you know, it's an, it's, I think it's an interesting idea to sort of, have that live action execution you know it's it's very tim burton to sort of render a a cartoonish world in live action but i also think that that's a very difficult thing to do and maybe not something that i i personally would tackle with like my first movie and i i feel like this this is classic uh stomach ache cinema for me have we talked about this Uh, possibly in the context of the gumby summer fun special (laughs) (laughs) possibly um my my go-to example is uh, The Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas <laughs> as a movie that I would see on TV on a Sunday afternoon and would be like, this is giving me a stomach ache. <laughs> and I feel like it's that sort of like, it's almost hyperactive, even though I don't think Chicken with Plums is like a particularly hyperactive movie exactly. Yeah. But like, and that sort of like glistening gauziness. It's, yeah, it's got like an aesthetic quality that is unpleasant. And I think, like, we probably associate it primarily with movies that we were like, if there was literally anything else to do, I would turn this <laughs> off. Or yes. in this case, perhaps if I didn't have an obligation <laughs> to finish this movie, I would not. Um, yes, yes I, I do know what you're uh, what you're talking about, certainly. Okay, we're, there's just there's so many different places we can go here. Uh, let's talk about a little more about the comic because. Wh- it's a rather dense comic in a lot of ways. 
It is. Uh, in, yeah. in terms of in terms of the the number of panels and the amount of text, you know, we've seen sometimes uh, she she does something that I think she does in embroideries as well. Um, the seventh day, where Nasir Ali is being visited by his sister, mm-hmm. and they sort of have a full, you know, the the seventh day is depicted in a single full screen, uh, uh, you know, full page spread. Yeah, where it's just it's basically a scripted a script of a conversation between them. And then the image is just her silhouetted in the doorway, yeah. which I think is like a really cool technique. But then other times you just have like really densely packed panels where it's like 11 panels on a page and all of the panels have like multiple sentences. Yes. Yeah, it is. It is very dense. I would say apart from the um, the like title card pages for each day and a few where she's like choosing to have just one or like three three or fewer panels other than that pretty much every page has at least seven or eight and some of them have up to like i'm looking at one here that i think has like 12 maybe or 11 so it is definitely pretty dense yeah i i enjoyed it a lot i thought i thought it did like a a really good job with elements that did not translate well to film but I thought were really effective in the comic, especially I'm thinking of like at the very beginning, his like dissatisfaction with all of the different tars that he plays and, and like with the musical notes, even, even Mm -hmm. like, even like when for a moment he thinks that he's made it and then the musical notes like start to sour and he gives up. And then at the end, when we see um, the like long flashback where he is like reminiscing on his career and how um, his like lost love with Iran was it was basically like the soul behind his music like it was just it was communicated very well and and then like the impact of that chance encounter which is what opens and kind of closes the book it it's it is a testament to like yeah the visual storytelling power of comics that sets it apart even from film because or, or at least live action film maybe you could have done basically the same thing in the animated medium as far as like having her there and like the thought bubbles and using the like visualization of the music notes and things like that but by and large i would say that it, it they are things that work very well and don't translate easily and because they don't translate easily they kind of just like thud down <laughs> in the movie whereas in the book they're kind of like the most important moments yeah and i think that that's true even narratively as well because you know the what the the sequence that i really think of as being like some of the most emotionally impactful is at the end of the third day when we sort of get the story of how the marriage between um nasir ali and Farun geese is that her name is that her name in the is she that named is in the comic her name in the movie for sure i don't even know if she's ever named in the comic but anyways but yes, this whole the whole like story of how their marriage came to be, how he was in love with this woman Iran, and then that did not work out, and then it led to basically him marrying uh, Farhan Geese without you know against not against his will, but <laughs> he was not excited about it and was sort of convinced by his family and by other you know outside parties to go through with it. Yes, and so you're cross cutting between his recollection or, you know, a depiction of those moments uh, contrasted with uh, his wife's remembrance of these moments. You know, obviously she sees it in a much more positive, happy light than he does. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then you also have that uh, at the same time you're showing his remembrances of when she breaks his violin and this yeah, argument she, uh, that she says what happened to us and you see you see his memories juxtaposed with her kind of in the moment yeah and and then, and then you end it with sophia loren <laughs> <laughs> saying ciao to him um it's so like it's like you have all those elements you have the magical realism or like you know i think back to persepolis where she has where dreams and sort of like her conversations with God and other like very unrealistic things are such a big part of the narrative. And so like, I am used to seeing this with satrapy. And so it's not outside the realm of what she's capable of. And I really like the way that, you know, we're cross cutting between all these different things and we're sort of like, I think that it really causes us to feel like this mounting regret that like she, even the moments that she remembers as like the good times those were like also born out of regret and like pain for him. And so, you know, it really puts his whole life in perspective. Mm -hmm. And I just think that that's not, you know, I don't think it would be possible to have a scene like that uh, in a film. And then it's, the way that they solve like, that it, it doesn't. Yeah. It, it, the, the cross cutting and like the, yeah, it's impossible to do in a, in a movie without it being like completely disorienting or like cutting every two seconds and basically feeling like a montage. Yeah, and but then the way that they solve that is that uh, they change it sort of so that on the final day, he is basically remembering this whole story of him and Iran, which right. is like of which you know, we've seen snippets up to that point. Yes, and then that takes up like the last twenty minutes of the film, mm -hmm. and I just think that that is so much less effective as because you know I think that it goes back to that she wants to do something unique with the framing device, with the way that sort of information about different characters and situations is parsed out over the course of the book. And I think that's really cool. Like, I think as so certainly like, I don't think it always succeeds perfectly in the comic, but I like, I think it's really cool that she's attempting it. Mm -hmm. And then in the film, I think like it just ends up being like, there's sort of this hanging mystery. And then once we finally get the full story, I think it's, it just feels less interesting to me, honestly, that like that we get are getting it all sort of dumped at the end yeah. rather than like we're teasing out and we're seeing more and we're seeing more. And then like we finally get the full context by the end. Yeah, because, yeah, it's it, it plays out so well in the comic where you have this like initial thing at the beginning that's completely out of context. You kind of forget about it. Um and then we see her again several times throughout the comic and basically get the story as far as like her her father said no. And it's not until we get like the recontextualization of the like, this is basically like that experience is why he was a good musician. And then the reveal of her at the funeral, which like, yeah, the movie like just just does not accomplish <laughs> that that part as well. Like the the her her presence in that montage which it kind of unfolds showing him like going around the world to perform and in the recording studio performing and living living his life after her she is present in that because they like cross cut that with scenes from her life as she also ages and like kind of we get her her journey up to that chance encounter that starts at the beginning too but there yeah just the like it's, it's more effective to have her as like a literal presence in every single one of those panels after his like his teacher basically declares that he is like now a master musician 
and then the connection as well, which I think is like where the real the real failure of the movie is that we see how his his the the way that she is present changes from his memory of her to this new memory that he wasn't even important to her uh, from his perception, and that is what mm-hmm. causes his like lost love is what made him a great musician and then all of a sudden his muse is like killed and so it's really like it has nothing to do with the tar it's really about how his like perception of his own life has been changed um that that causes him to give up on life i just feel like that doesn't come through in the movie at all yeah i think and i think what's yeah i think i think we need we need that stuff to be parsed out over the course of the full runtime because like that's what causes us to feel like the weight. And I think that like, she is very good at, you know, making us feel the weight of things. Like, especially like, I feel like a lot of sort of like what her work concerns is people who have been like emotionally repressed, you know, because she works a lot, uh, you know, with like the history of Iran, which is uh, to some degree. And obviously, you know, she has a lot more to say about it than just this, but it, it is a history of repression and a history of, you know, having to keep your true self concealed in some way, having to push down or hide these true emotions in favor of sort of what is expected out of you, whether it's, you know, your role in a marriage, your role in society, your role as a woman, whatever. And I feel like we need to feel that weight constantly. And then the ending sort of becomes this, like, it slots everything into place. And that's sort of like the like heartbreak moment that like we we feel we feel something there and then once it all comes into focus is when it's like oh like this whole time it was like it was like this and i think that is maybe what we don't see in the film like i mean in the film he just seems like he's sort of like noodling around Mm -hmm. and then like at the end we get like a pretty good short film about like (laughs) a lost love uh and we you know and then like you said the time that is being spent other that would otherwise be devoted to that is being spent on like doing weird camera tricks <laughs> and just like and like delving into like some kind of somewhat random stuff that you know is in the book certainly but feels more incidental to that main thread yeah yeah i agree i will say the one section that i think is a lot better in the movie or at least works at least as well is the sixth day uh, which is his like meeting with death and the conversation mm. with death. I thought that was kind of like the one section where having him in live action, it was like a really striking effect. Whoever was playing him was like having a ball. <laughs> he was playing Azrael. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I just felt like that was an opportunity for her to like leverage the performance of the actors in a way that I came away with like a better sense of, his like new uncertainty and like kind of regret in his decision to die and then being told that it was too late for him to change his mind like that that just felt like a lot heavier and a lot more like i guess real than uh, than the way it comes through in the book where in which it is like a relatively short sequence i would say yeah it is it's about i think the whole thing lasts about five pages Right. Including and, and this flashback say, to his some to of that the is angel's like story. The the classic fable slash like joke. <laughs> like <laughs> I feel like I have heard that literally told as a joke. You're right. Yeah, and it's yeah, I agree with you. I do think that that is an effective part, and you know, I think that is 
an area especially where that sort of heightened sensibility works particularly well Mm -hmm. because obviously it is a it is a heightened scene it is a fantastical scene and so i think that that aesthetic works when it's do when that is more explicitly what the book is trying to do as well and like what the scene is calling for and then you know you contrast you contrast that with scenes like you know where you have the class like booing him which is like that's funny. that's a scene <laughs> sure it's funny but it's but i think like that's also like a very real and grounded thing that is like grounded in like real feelings and so i feel like when it's heightened it's sort of putting up a barrier uh, like an aesthetic barrier between like the emotion of the scene and what comes across on the screen. Yeah. The one thing that I guess I don't like fully still understand is exactly what it is about the conversation with Azriel that makes him change his mind. He kind of like, he recites this poem to Nasser Ali, which is where returned before uh, who returned of all that went before to tell of that long road they travel or leave not undone of what you have to do for when you go you will return no more to which <laughs> Nazar Ali says he was right and Azriel replies yes I know you're the one who needed to hear it. <laughs> uh, which is yeah. very funny but I, I like I think my my interpretation of that was basically his realization that like sort of that like you know that that life has some inherent value that like even though his life has not gone on the way it was has not like you know played out the way that he dreamed that it would like that there you know as long as you are still alive there is still time to like do something that you know either something that will like be beneficial you know obviously he has children so there's a there's a big sense of like you want to do right by your children Mm -hmm. he has this sort of on well i mean i guess he doesn't know that his relationship with iran is sort of un you know it's it's not a closed book so right. to speak in the way that he perceives it but yeah that there's this idea that like there's the only thing that's stopping you from accomplishing something is if you are dead <laughs> and like you can't go back at that point and then he's like wait should i have like saved my game before i went and fought this boss <laughs> uh, <laughs> so i can walk this back but and then he realizes that it's like oh well i guess i I've made my decision and now I have to like accept that it's real. Yeah. And there is of course the very good sequence where he thinks that he is uh, being kept alive because his daughter is praying for him and it is in fact his son. We love yeah, that. Like, that's like, that's like such a good, like, and it, you know, it's easy quote unquote, like that's just like an easy emotional moment where you have that little twist that like digs that little emotional hook in mm-hmm. And it's like that, why Why is there none of that? Like when it's so, and you know, maybe easy is not the right word, but like you have those sort of very simple, poignant emotional moments and you're choosing to sort of eschew those in favor of more of like the magical realism parts right. or like the heightened parts. We want to make sure we get more time with Jafar in his uh, homeless old man <laughs> cosplay. <laughs> sure just who that guy at the funeral reminded me of (laughs) sure do we want to talk about the venice international film festival lay it on me (laughs) well just that this this premiered in competition uh it was in competition for the golden lion um a few films 444 last day on earth by abel ferrara i know you don't know who that is but i've heard uh 
here that's a very interesting film um carnage the roman polanski film cool guy i thought that was uh uh andy circus joint andy circus <laughs> sure 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 shout out to all the comic book fans listening uh. <laughs> <laughs> such as you are um dangerous method the cronenberg is that a freud movie yeah. it's like sex therapy yeah kind of movie uh the golden line winner is the film faust which is a you know interpretation of the the classic faustian myth mm-hmm. um i'm not familiar with this actor or this director alexander sukarov it's a russian work mm-hmm. uh the ides of march the george clooney film mm-hmm. uh of Isn't course like as legal we legal thriller it's a political, political thing thriller. yeah there's a, I mean, one of the great posters. Are you, do you know this poster? I have a vague, like Gosling is in that also, right? Yeah. So Gosling, I think, is his like campaign manager or advisor of some sort. And the poster is Gosling holding up an issue of Time magazine. Mm. And, it, and the caption is, is this man our next president? And it's George Clooney's face. Good. One of, one of the great movie posters. Um, the previously discussed Sadiq Bale. <laughs> <laughs> member of the Detroit Pistons, one of the great young small forwards, uh, Andrea Arnold's Wuthering Heights, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, Steve McQueen's Shame. Uh, that's pretty much it. Let me see if anything fun premiered out of competition. Doesn't look like it. So yeah, that's uh, not a not as strong as that year at Con. Not one when, for the books? You know, there's there's some notable stuff here, but not so, not a lot of stuff that I would really be excited about. Uh, William Friedkin's Killer Joe, of course, another one, mm. uh, starring Matthew McConaughey. I think that was one of his last films. He's still with us. He is Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> <laughs> William Friedkin. Uh, good to know. We've talked about uh, when I saw Hunger, right? <laughs> Have Steve McQueen's please. Hunger. Yes, please recount it. <laughs> so this was a summer when we were working uh, at a summer camp. I think you were mm. working there that summer, also. I don't recall, uh, but mm-hmm. I certainly was uh, mm-hmm. in the long haul for the full summer. And when you are uh, like one of the counselors, you get one day off a week. And at that time, the camp was in like the grip of a pandemic. Not, like, not, the not, not the COVID-19 pandemic. pandemic, some kind of like stomach flu where, but we did have like a quarantine cabin set up and like the quarantine people all had to like eat on their own outside the dining hall and like would wave to people from inside and were very sad in between bouts of like puking and diarrhea simultaneously, <laughs> like every fluid in their body leaving every orifice. It was truly terrible. <laughs> um, and because of that, the staff compliment was like decimated and everyone was like so overworked. And so me and the guy who was like my roommate for the summer had the same day off and we were like, we just need to like get out of here and like do nothing and rest. So we drove to, to the like gas station that was like 10 minutes away, which was like the closest place to rent movies because the camp is like out in the middle of nowhere. We were looking mm-hmm. through them. <laughs> <laughs> we had it narrowed down to uh, Danny Trejo is Machete <laughs> and Steve McQueen's Hunger, <laughs> which we knew nothing about. We just looked and we were like, okay, Michael Fassbender, like the Troubles, he's a revolutionary. And for some reason, we were like, 
obviously this is an action movie of some kind. <laughs> yeah, Steve McQueen, the guy yeah. from Great Escape. Steve, Steve McQueen, <laughs> legendary action star, Michael Fassbender, like known mostly to us at that time for like Inglorious Bastards and like X-Men and stuff. So we were like, yeah, let's let's get this. And of course, if you've ever seen Hunger, it is like <laughs> mostly lots of shots of like all of the prisoners simultaneously urinating under their doors and then like a guard coming with a big squeegee and like pushing it all back into the cells and there's like <laughs> like a 20 minute wonder it's not even a one it's just like a fixed camera shot of like a 20 minute dialogue scene between michael fassbender and this priest talking about like the cost of resistance basically it's like so somber so serious like schindler's list core almost in terms of like harrowing work yeah harrowing work the like suffering like is like what it's about (laughs) and we watched it at like 10 o'clock at night on our one day off from being like away from an active like pandemic (laughs) and it ended and we just turned it off and we're like Oh, (laughs) rolled over, went to sleep and had to be back at the camp at like seven o'clock the next morning. (laughs) Uh, My version of that story is on my day off. I watched Donnie Darko in the dark (laughs) by myself and then like left and then like left the the, like place where I was watching it and then like walked to dinner and like people were like being normal at a summer camp. And I was like, (laughs) I feel like a crazy person. Yes, there was a a rich, um, like, hard drive trade at camp where people would, like, Mm. pass around their hard drives because people had different movies saved. Whoever was on their day off would go out in search of whoever had the best hard drive, get their fix. But, uh, but yeah, so, Hunger, what a film. (laughs) Sure. And Donnie Darko, what a film. And uh, 2011, what a year for Venice. (laughs) Sure, I suppose. Um let's just just quickly the character's name is iran yeah okay so thoughts on this <laughs> so it didn't even occur to me that that was like the pronunciation because in the book it's spelled i-r-a-n-e and it also is in the credits of the film but in the subtitles it's just i-r-a-n and then i was like am i adult <laughs> but then i was like am i adult like i i <laughs> I I spent most of my shower this morning thinking about this, trying to parse, like, what the meaning would be if this was all about his relationship with Iran and, like, what that says Mm -hmm. about Satrapi or what she's trying to say about Mm -hmm. her own relationship with Iran, the country, not the woman. And I just, like, pretty much came up dry where I was like, I could, you know, I'm sure I could come up with some things that probably, like, sound right. But I don't know that I could point to anything and be like, well, obviously, like this, 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 and like lay out a good case for it. Yeah, like I was I was sort of, again, like trying to think about it as well, because it, it wasn't really something I noticed in the reading. And then I really noticed it watching the movie. Yeah, I, you know, they're, they're certainly like very, I'm reading into this and I don't know how supported by the text it is cases where it's like, you know, where if, if you put her in sort of the position of this artist like this unhappy artist who like his life's work is born out of like his inherent unhappiness with like the way his life has gone right and his great lost love is iran who like and the, the wanted... sadness of the loss sustains his art basically yeah, yeah exactly. this is, this is I... what i also basically came up with and was like 
like i guess <laughs> yeah i mean like i think i think that's like a, a fascinating like thing to cover in your work like i i think that that's a, a cool idea for sure i i don't know if i can say with any certainty that that is like what she wanted it to be about i guess like the big confusion for me is is her name iran like like the country <laughs> or mm-hmm. or is it just like it seems like it can't possibly be a coincidence <laughs> yeah because her work has so deeply especially up to this point her her comics work is almost is exclusively focused around iran and stories of different figures in iran at different times so like it, it like you said it seems impossible that it's a mistake or that it's a coincidence <laughs> a mistake would be funny <laughs> i was I'm, i meant to say irene <laughs> But yeah, like I think, you know, it sort of it sort of it made me think of, do you know I used to love her? No. The the song, it's the song by Common where it's like he he is just like talking about like this woman that he loved that like turned to, you know, she was like degraded and became like uh, and he's talking about the rap game. Yes, that her is an acronym for hip hop in its essence is real. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's a it's a very good song. Uh, I'm probably making it seem a little more trite than uh, than it actually is in the song, but that was sort of like what I thought of. Not that I think she is really criticizing Iran. I think it would, if you know, again, if this read is true, it's more about her relationship with Iran and like what she feels was, you know, either lost or taken from her in some way. Um, what do we think about the whole Hushang sequence? in both the film and the book. Uh, can you... He is like the dealer who sells him the uh, Stradivarius oh, the... slash the Yayatar. Right. So at the very beginning, he is... Uh... The opium dealer. <laughs> yes, he's. they smoke some opium. Uh, like, what do you mean, what do I think of it? Can I, I, you... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It just was something that was like, what a long sequence, again, in both the book and the film for something that ends up being like so he bought himself another cool violin slash tar yeah and then you know that's it's also very closely linked with this like weird annoyance he has with his son or you yeah, know, his I son mean, is like stuff i love the bus, <laughs> the bus trip the bus trip is another sequence where i was like what a success in the book that does not translate into the movie yes i agree um, you know, maybe, and again, this is just sort of me like looking at it, looking for a read now that you bring it up, but maybe, you know, maybe I think to some degree it's sort of painting this sort of inherent unhappiness in his life or like, you know, this dissatisfaction with the way his life has gone thus far. But yeah, I agree. It's, it is interesting because a lot, you know, you have the, the seventh day, which is truncated to one page mm-hmm. and you have the sixth day which is five pages whereas well, this the, is like the seventh day being one page is uh, a stroke of genius <laughs> yes <laughs> no, I, I, no complaints I really... from me about that no 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 not at all but yeah it, it is interesting that because you know there's no limit on how long she could have made this book mm-hmm. but the fact that that is so truncated while well, that is given more time to breathe is an interesting point and i think maybe to some extent we're sort of you know, because I didn't know exactly what the book was going to be uh, when I was starting it. And so having this whole lead up that seems to sort of like be sending us in one direction or depicting one type of story that is then followed by like the, you have 15 pages of lead up to him playing one note. 
And then it's like, oh, no, the note is bad, basically. <laughs> Don't. And then that, like, set is what sends him into this existential spiral. Yes. I think that is maybe, like, part of what what works about it. True, good, true. But what about the part where he is, like, cheated <laughs> out of his tar by the first guy? Yeah, well, yeah. That, I felt like that was kind of just, like, first scene material, if that uh, makes yeah. sense. You know, and this is like again, we're, this we're is dropping the... in like in medias res, right? So it's like the, this is as fine a place I think to start as any to see him re- sure. getting like replacing his tar without knowing yet what happened to the right. old one, and he is like a good vehicle to be like someone broke your tar, like that was such a good like instrument. Who could have done this for him to be like myob? Give me another tar. <laughs> Like, I think yeah. I, I do like that, um, that sequence. Yeah. And maybe again, this is me sort of looking for, for a read again, but the sort of idea that like the, the tar, that music is sort of like his opiate in a way mm-hmm. that like, it's a, it's a distraction or like a numbing for like this life that he is so deeply unhappy with. And then that like when he loses, cause you know, obviously the, the inciting incident of the film is like, or of the book and the film is like he loses his ability to enjoy his music, and that is sort of like when he's like, "Well, time to die." Yep, yep. It was interesting. I read an interview with her where she said that she wrote the book. She was approached to do a movie, and she had this story, and they were like, "Let's do that." And she was like, "No, I don't want to do movies. I want to do books, and and I can do this as a book." And she says, I, "It was just to show him the producer." who ultimately produced this and who I think was also the producer of Persepolis, um, mm-hmm. that you could make a book out of it. Uh, but I think that the story, even the structure that was in the book already, it's very cinematographic, which, which I was kind of like, I do see that like the, the eight days thing with like the title cards that does lend itself to a movie very mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't think, I, I guess I'm not sure how I feel. Like, do you think that there's a good movie to be made from this? Like, if you put it, I don't even know who would direct such a film. But like, you know, I, I like I don't I I don't want like Tim Burton's version, <laughs> especially no. like circa 2011. Yeah, I I don't either. I do think there is a good version of the movie though. I think like a little more tonal consistency. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think in some ways almost just like someone more like marketable if that makes sense like someone someone who has like a better sort of feel for the like how the audience expects to be told the story if that makes sense I think this is basically what we ran into with Persepolis as well as like we're not saying like do the most trite obvious thing you could possibly do so much as I think we're saying like there are certain storytelling conventions that have like come to be sort of familiar and accepted. And I think that if they were applied to some of the images, um, like emotional scenes here, like I can just, I can envision very clearly, like how you might show that he has like lost his, his appreciation for music in a film without like significantly like changing anything really, but in a way that like is just not really present in the movie that we have. Where it's just like things like that that I'm like, I do think that if someone tweaked that so that things like came through a bit more clearly and then other moments, if they just came through in a way that is like a little bit more 
familiar so that the emotion underneath or the like plot underneath is a little more accessible. Like I do think this is a great story and I think it could be something like when I finished the book, I was like, wow, that like a poignant reflection on like life and death. Um, and I think you could achieve that effect in a movie too. But yeah, I, I just, I think like there's something missing in terms of like his melancholy that, that I, I don't think needs to be missing. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And like I said, like, I think that that is one of the more important aspects of the movie mm-hmm. that you have, like this sort of overbearing melancholy, that, like pervades everything. Hey, maybe Steve McQueen could direct it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's, it's kind of like, I think if I just watched, if I just read the comic and then watched the movie and someone said like, who I would I would say something to the effect of like wow like the director really just like did not have a good handle on what the text was but then it's like <laughs> she is the director and so it's surprising to me that like she that both Persepolis and this seem to struggle with the kind of tonality that she creates because I think like what one of the things she's great at is like being able to have that sense of overbearing melancholy and like sadness and things like that. But then still having like humorous moments, little interludes, characters can say jokes or be funny right. without and that, you know, you can recognize that as funny without it breaking the sort of consistency of tone. Right. And I get I guess it, I don't know if that's just harder to do in a in a film, especially a live action film. Yeah, or, well, or what? I was going to say, like, I do think that she carried that off fairly well in Persepolis that like Persepolis is a funny movie, whereas in this like. I think that is part of what contributes to it being a stomachache movie is that like you can go in very jarring ways. Like it gives all, a lot of the humor, a like kind of nightmarish cast. And part of that <laughs> is like the deliberate surrealism of some of the sea, like, like the whole, again, the whole, they changed his name in the movie, but the son's whole like life scene. Well, that is, is, just... is like, <laughs> like, there's part of me that like this is funny but mostly i'm like kind of repulsed and like that's kind of the point i know but like i don't know it's just a lot funnier for me to like see him sitting with like his fat kids and one of them is wearing a shirt that says fuck (laughs) (laughs) did you see did you pause that one says says fart (laughs) and one says shit and one says fart with a middle finger in the middle (laughs) i did see the fart with the middle finger in the middle and was like (laughs) That's funny. I'm not sure if it's as funny as a shirt that just says fuck. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you can't have that. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I think, and I think to some degree, it's like almost like a hat on a hat because like, I think we're sort of meant to understand that there is like a certain, Amer- like it's like sort of like the ugly American kind of mm-hmm. idea that prevails, you know, especially a lot of like European work, like that I think we we're meant to understand that. And so to to depict that and then also have it framed in this like American sitcom styling that is like deliberately grotesque, I think like that maybe pushes it over the edge to me. Right. And and that I think like it it is like a very French feeling film, I will say. <laughs> like the humor some, I don't know how to put it into words exactly, it, but I it, did it, a the few humor times, does feel very French. Yeah. There were a couple points where I was like I've never seen Amelie, but I'm pretty sure that Amelie is kind of like this. 
I have also never seen Amelie, and I'm also pretty sure that Amelie is like that. Like less not not necessarily like that sort of nightmare stuff, but no. that sort of sense of heightened magical realism. Yeah. And that sort of like aesthetic creaminess. <laughs> oh, okay, sure. But yes, what else do we need to talk about? Well, the one thing I want to say, which is mostly just an observation that I think is funny, is that his sister, Parveen, is like one of the main characters in Embroideries. And we never see her face in this for some reason. I just noticed as we've kind of been talking and, and going through, she appears several times. Her name is only said on day seven, but she is like kind of in and out several times, but her face is always obscured. Which I was kind of like, this is a funny thing. When you've already written embroideries. Yeah, yeah I, I like it's. Uh, I, I've been trying to figure out kind of, I guess, what her thought was where she was like, I'm not going to have Parveen's face ever be in it. If it's like, just that it's like, this isn't Parveen's story or or what yeah, exactly. I, but Yeah, the, the, that's another reason why the the whole scene with like the, the American family... Uh, with Mozafar's family was weird to me because I was like, are these like your cousins? <laughs> like, kind of being mean to in uh, some ways. Well, yeah, she, she, like, she has the scene where she meets the daughter. Right. Yeah, also, maybe I'm totally, like, maybe I just fully tuned out at this point. Did they depict in the film the whole sequence with his mother in the hospital? Yes, she was. I don't think she was in the hospital, but yes. With the smoking. Yeah, it was another thing where I would have said it did not translate over as well. Yeah, because like, but, I mean, like, yes, again, like they, they had the scene where he was like playing outside the window and the smoke was coming out. And then okay. the, like the scene at the grave with the cloud of smoke hanging over it and Jafar's cosplay guy comes right. and tells all his stories. Yeah, I think I, I do think I had like fully tuned. I like I it was only like in the middle it, that I like fully tuned out. pretty hard in that section. I got to say no, uh, no offense to... Isabella Rossellini, who is insanely playing his mother. (laughs) Yes, that is insane. Um, She works with great uh, actors. Like, not that she doesn't deserve to, but it's like, how did you get these people? Um, But yeah, like, that is, like, one of my favorite sequences in the book that, like, that there, I think that is a great example of the sort of magical realism that's, like, it's built around the concept of prayer and sort of takes it as a given that like prayer has this very direct like physical ramification mm-hmm. that like the fact that he is praying for her is keeping her alive and like everyone just sort of accepts that to be true and then you have this like whole her body being surrounded by a cloud of smoke which is just <laughs> like crazy and like a, a very cool idea and you know it doesn't they don't really give an explanation other than like from this guy who you know it's it's sort of always depicted as a theory rather than presented as fact Mm -hmm. and you know just i i i think that that is like some of the most effective stuff and some of the most effective blending of fantasy and reality that i think she's going for in in large parts of this book and so i was just like how is how does this like leave no impression on me yes should we do we have anything else that need be said is there are there any other actors we want to talk about? Um, we talk about? Well, the uh, the actor who played the adult daughter was Chiara Mastriani, who voiced Marjan in Persepolis. So there's ah, that. Sure, sure, sure. 
but other than that, well, I, I guess the only thing I would remark on is that sometimes I felt like the fact that they only cast other actors for like the child child versions of uh, the, you know, the whole crew meant that when we were seeing like Matthew, what's his face playing like 21, <laughs> it was like... <laughs> when is this <laughs> happening in his life again? Like quite not a, quite, not a young looking man. No. And, and, um, Ferengis, the actress playing Ferengis is also like, you know, they're, they're appropriately cast for the age they are for most of the film. But that just meant like during the flashbacks, I was just kind of like, how old is everyone supposed to be right now? Yes, it's true. Uh, a Maria to Medeiros also a, uh, and a director in her own right. Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff. Okay, so now do we want to sort of zoom out and talk about satrapy on the whole? Sure. Uh, but yeah, that this is basically, like I said, this is basically the end of her comics career. And so, you know, if you look at her sort of full filmography, there's the Persepolises. And then, like you said, there are a few children's books, I believe. And then Embroideries and Chicken with Plums are sort of her major graphic novel works and so it's it is kind of surprising and a little sad to me that she just sort of seems to have gone away from comics entirely because like you know you think of someone like i think of scott a lot like how he has the sculptor from a few years ago and that's like he has sort of like a later career mm-hmm. major work well and he's like... been working on something else as well for quite a mm-hmm. while but but yeah it, it, he's an example of someone who has shifted to that sort of like public intellectual in terms of like you know he's, right exactly he's giving workshops he's speaking he's teaching he's you know giving giving ted talks like that kind of thing which is all time consuming um mm-hmm. but he is still like I'm sure he would say he still thinks of himself as a comics creator first and foremost, and he's never really stopped like having a project that he's working on in that realm. Whereas, yeah, and the, like yeah, Satrapy. I mean, again, we've we've talked before about how like it's kind of hard for us to like really learn about what she is doing because she lives in France. She mostly speaks to French media, unless you know she's. She's giving an interview about <laughs> one of her movies that is coming out in America or, or globally. But um, but yeah, I, I read a... She mentioned in an interview that she had another book, or, uh, or was it a, a movie? There was something called The 11th Laureate that she was working on. I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be a movie or a comic. Right. Yeah, she... It's interesting. And, you know, obviously Scott McCloud is a different case, because he has always been, like, a comics theorist specifically. And sort of, like, obviously a huge amount of his work is dedicated towards comics as a medium. So, like, it, it makes sense that Scott McCloud is still talking about comics and, like, primarily dealing in the comic world. Whereas someone like Satrapy, who maybe her interests are more the broad art world, culture, politics, like, more sort of things like that, that she might shy away from comics. But, like... It's surprising because I think that her work in a lot of ways, like, you know, and we've talked about this, we've talked about comparing very directly Persepolis and Chicken with Plums as comics instead of movies. And I think in both cases, we prefer the comics. And I think that her work reveals what 
the medium of comics is sort of capable of that film might struggle with at times. Yeah, I uh, I would concur. Uh, I'll be interested to hear uh, what you think of Radioactive and, and if she seems like she's settling a bit more into that film as a medium because, yeah, like you just said, when we compare her comics with her movies, in both cases, you know, she was the writer and the artist of the comics and then it was adapted from her writing and she directed the films. And in both cases, I felt like she had a much stronger handle on comics as kind of her preferred storytelling medium. But uh, but if they asked me to make movies, I probably would too, and they would be bad. <laughs> but, but, but I would absolutely make them. Um, yeah, and that that's maybe that's another thing that sort of surprised me is like, you know, I I think it would be very hard given how much I liked. I think it's, you know it's a compliment to her comics work that like I can't imagine I would like her directing work better. Um, but yeah, like I think. It's it's sort of surprising to me that she has been pretty able to consistently get movies made because it, like it's, it's it's hard to make a movie and it's hard to as a woman uh, you know like get funding you know we hear all the time about popular or like successful directors who have made like movies that grossed a hundred million dollars and then you make one flop and then you don't make a movie for like fifteen years like I can't remember who specifically but I was literally just talking to someone about this that like there was someone who made like a very big movie. Actually, you, you, you talk for a bit and I'm going to find out who this director is. Uh, sure. Well, I was, I was just going to say that I think this is potentially also something where there's just like a cultural element that we're missing because we don't really have a sense of how she's viewed in France. And like, for all we know, it could have been like a real coup when they like got, they were, when they were like, Satrapi's going to like make her directorial debut and it's going to oh, be yeah. like her own work. Like we don't really oh, have yeah. a sense of what the cultural impact of that was like. And even chicken with plums, which we like, you know, I think we're both pretty lukewarm on. I would, I would characterize our response was like an award-winning film and like entered in competition at the Venice Film Festival. Like, I don't think that movie is seen as a failure by any stretch of the imagination. So then to go on and, and have it be like, oh, like Ryan Reynolds wants to work with her crazily. <laughs> and like, there's this like comic that we want to adapt. And it's like a, a biopic of like a famous like woman in who was like a, a pioneer in her field. Like, what we're going to give that to a man like uh no well, let's find like a good woman who can direct this um and i don't think she's necessarily like a bad choice like you no, know there's, I... there's the comics connection there's the like whole gender perspective thing like yeah. i can see how she keeps like uh, finding herself in the, the director's chair is not like even really what i want to say like i don't think that her career as a director has been like you know staggering per se but I don't like she has yet to fail from what I've seen. And so it, it, like it doesn't surprise me that she continues to get chances, especially because I assume yeah. that there's like an element on the like European side in which she is probably seen as like a get. Yeah. And yeah, I, I didn't I didn't want to frame it as like, I don't know how she keeps getting work. because <laughs> That's certainly not what I mean. And I certainly I don't begrudge her. Because, you know, she certainly seems interested in making films. And obviously, someone should do something that they're artistically drawn to. But I just think that... And maybe 
maybe she just doesn't necessarily have as much to say in the graphic novel medium as she used to. Because, you know, I think I think it is interesting that all of her major comics works are about Iran and are, like, about that history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's totally possible that she just doesn't want to keep talking about Iran, which is a very, very valid pursuit for an artist. And, you know, her... Maybe her... She just naturally links those two things because they're she is so closely associated with them but i do think it's sad just because like her she has like i think really cool perspective on other like i think her perspective on like children and the way children behave and think is really interesting i think her perspective on women and like friendships between women and the female sort of family unit like you know that that you have a family and then you have the women in a family and that is sort of its own subunit, which, you know, she explores, I think, really wonderfully in embroideries. Yeah. And so for that reason, like, I think, and maybe, and, you know, Chicken with Plums, it's linked to her family, but that's not a personal work, I wouldn't say, at least not overtly. And so, like, I do think that she would be able to make a comic that is not about being in Iran or someone that she is related to which is mostly what she has done in her comics career and so it is like just a bit of a bummer that like we don't get to see that and that we don't get to see like because you know that's why i made the scott comparison because it's like he had like uh he was more prolific in the early 2000s and then we didn't really get like a major major work from him for like 10 years and then we got the sculptor which is like that's not our favorite scott mcleod work necessarily but we liked it. We thought it had some really cool things to say. We thought it was certainly an interesting entry in his sort of canon of work. And so I would love to see, like, the 2015 graphic novel by Marjan Satrapi and, like, what that looks like and what the story is. And so I feel like that is sort of, like, what we are missing out on right now. Yep, I agree. Um, the director that I was thinking of was Mimi Letter. I believe is how you pronounce it, who made... So her first movie was The Peacemaker, which is a very cool-looking movie, uh, 1977 political action thriller starring George Clooney and Nicole Kidman. Sounds like a winner. And then she made Deep Impact in 1998. And then she made Pay It Forward, which was like a moderate flop. Obviously, like not... I feel like I have heard of. Yeah, it's with like Kevin Spacey, great man, um, Helen Hunt, Haley <laughs> Joel Osment. It's basically yeah. like, it's basically just about like, you know, it's obviously the origin of the phrase pay it forward. And just like, it's a movie about being nice to people. Right. Uh, and then that was like, it wasn't even a flop, I don't think. It was not well received. It made $55 million on a $40 million budget, which you can call a flop in in some circles. And then it's like, so she makes those three movies in four years. And then she doesn't make a movie for nine years. She makes a movie called Thick as Thieves, which is like an action movie with Morgan Freeman and Antonio Banderas. Also in sounds like a winner. Yeah, a direct I mean, I DVD. Guess, I guess like he's also in like Wanted and stuff. So sure, sure, sure. Yeah, oh yeah. He Morgan was working at that time. Sure. Um, hey, you know who's working this like this summer? Brad Pitt. Is in it's so much city, baby. stuff. <laughs> I went to, as I mentioned uh, on, in the last episode. I went to see the Batman recently, and he was in like three of the four trailers ahead of it. And I was like, "Bullet Train." Brad is like getting the bag this summer. I guess. <laughs> like so I don't know what's up with uh, 
post Oscar. I guess is that what it is? I think so. That like he didn't really have like you know because that movie was 2019. He wins the Oscar like right before COVID, right? <laughs> and so the, and so this is like his like post Oscar. I have like three <laughs> movies coming out this year. Do year. whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so so then, then so she doesn't make a movie for nine years. She makes Thick as Thieves, which is a direct DVD movie, and then nine years after that, she makes On the Basis of Sex, which is the RBG biopic. And please, Freedom Yarana. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, which you know is like is to some degree like an awards player and things like that. Maybe not super well received, but like it's crazy that someone can make two movies. Let's just make sure. Deep Impact must have made it. Yeah, Deep Impact Deep, made Deep three hundred and fifty million dollars. I was going to say Deep Impact is like a big deal. Yeah, and then she makes one moderate flop, and then she doesn't get to make a theatrically released movie for literally twenty years. And I think that that is like not an unusual scenario with female directors that they just don't. It's not the same. They're not judged by the same standards that they don't get like multiple bites at the apple on the basis of making one successful movie. Right. Even someone like her, who is like an action director by and large. So good for, good for Satrapi is basically what I'm saying yeah. that she has been able to make like five movies in 15 years. And I assume is probably making a movie right now. Maybe not, but I, I would assume that she has irons in the fire and that she's not like desperately hunting for work no. or like retired. <laughs> <laughs> right. I hope not. Certainly. Certainly. Um, and, you know, like, maybe maybe five years from now, she'll do something and we can come back to her. That would be exciting. One never knows. But, yeah, so I guess that will close the book on Marjan Satrapi. Well, we David, would you like to do the uh, rankings? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh, this is actually a tough one. Our, I think I'm pretty I, I think we can... I'm, I'm assuming really? that we're not doing the movies in this. Yes, those would. I mean, those would be at the bottom for me. I like all of her comics better than I like Persepolis, and then I like the the one thing I actively dislike is the Chicken with Plums movie. Uh, yeah, I would pretty pretty much agree with that. But yeah, I, yeah, I think so, I pretty settled on my rankings. Yeah, I think it's tough for uh, so I can go first. Sure, it's tough. It's tough for me because. It sort of goes between... This is like a, a very classic thing where it's like... On the one hand, you have Persepolis, which is like... Uh, it's it's epic in some ways. Like, it has like a pretty wide scope. It tells the story of like 20 plus years of life. It is her... You know, it is her... I think it's fair to call it like her masterpiece. Or like the, the work that best sort of exemplifies all the things that she's interested in talking about. And it's about her life as well. So it has that like double impact of it but then on the other hand you have embroideries which is like sort of the type of thing that i really love like i love uh the work of celine siama the director who like the i think that it i would love to see her make an embroideries movie <laughs> because like she tells like these small stories and these stories where like it can just be like people talking in a room and you sort of like find some some real beauty in that and i love the way that like embroidery sort of does a lot with a little in some ways in terms of like she doesn't have like i guess you know in some way i guess you have like 50 years of family history to go off of but she doesn't ha it's not doesn't have like a baked in thread in the way that persepolis does right. but still manages to like draw out such a great work but ultimately i still think i prefer persepolis just because well i don't know I don't. It's really hard for me. 
I think if I were going to go back and reread one, it would probably be embroideries. Yeah. But I think I think it's hard. I think Persepolis is just undeniable as like her great work. And so I think I have to put that first, then embroideries, then chicken with plums, which I also like quite a bit, but those it's not in contention for the top spot. Right. Yeah, I, I guess it really depends on like the criteria that you're judging it by and whether you're saying like this is it's it's a real Sufjan Stevens dilemma where for me I'm mm. like the best Sufjan song, in my opinion, is all delighted people, like quite easily. But that's like nobody's like favorite song, including me. Like it, that's not the Sufjan <laughs> song that I'm gonna like put on. I just think it's so like ambitious and and like you know meaningful that I'm like I I gotta say like I think it's his best song by quite a bit. But I would never say like you know if if I'm like ranking Sufjan songs, I'm not putting all delighted people at number one. And it's the same right. thing with with Satrapi. Like I do think that as we've said many times, like Persepolis is a very important work. It's a very impressive work. Um, it's, it's a classic of the medium uh, for good reason. But if I'm like just going to the bookshelf to pull something off and read, I'm probably reaching for embroideries. So um, for my, my personal rankings, I have to go embroideries, number one, Persepolis, number two, and chicken with plums, number three, and I think Chicken with Plums is probably closer to Persepolis than it would be for most people. Okay, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, Sufjan Stevens released a real album challenge. <laughs> He's released, like, a hundred songs in the last five years, and, like, none of them are, like, real. They're all, like, weird, like, co-productions with, like, his dad. <laughs> but yeah, so I guess I suppose that does it for uh, Marjan Satrapi. Yeah. That closes the book. I mean, like, you know, good, a, a great miniseries. Yeah. Nice to uh, get a break <laughs> from <laughs> the longies that we were dealing with with Vaughn. And, you know, I, I think, like like I said, I think going into Persepolis, like, I went into this not really knowing who she was, not really knowing her work, not knowing what to expect of this. And I think I came away not surprised, but to some extent surprised with how much I enjoyed, especially her non-Persepolis work, I think should be talked about and like sort of critically evaluated more heavily than it has been from what i can see from like just trying to find information about it right yeah i uh in in some ways she like kind of exemplifies like why i wanted to do this podcast basically in the first place because Mm -hmm. she's a creator who i'm like i've always heard that this person is important she's got like this book that you know everyone talks about that i've never read and i want to read and also like I know it's not the only thing she's done and having the opportunity to look at both like the classic, you know, towering work in the field and also the other things and and think a little bit about like, what is it that makes these just kind of like exist while she has this, this kind of like touch point um, for, for comics as a whole. And yeah, having the opportunity to explore the deeper cuts of people who are very well known and read books that, I've always wanted to read and, and have never gotten the chance to. I'm uh, I'm glad that we were able to uh, to do her. Um, and now it's time for a creator who I've read everything they've ever done. <laughs> well, well, I was I was gonna say that this creator for me is very it's similar to that. Like you just said, like they this creator has one work that is extremely well known to the the general public, yes. and some other works that people 
most likely have not had a chance to dig into. Uh, and that is, if I may announce it, Dave, and it's also someone who whose work has been adapted into the motion picture world. Our next creator that we will be covering is Brian Leo Malley. The hometown boy himself. Canada, Canada's own, Toronto's own. I own. maybe Yeah. I, I maybe I'll see if I can uh get a copy dig of his birth photo. certificate. <laughs> <laughs> oh? I'm pretty sure I was born at the same hospital as him. <laughs> wow. Swagging out. Yeah. Um no, I'll, I'll see if I can dig up uh, the photo I have with him. Oh yeah. From I when forgot. he <laughs> Forgot gave like a exists. workshop at a, a con- uh, some like school conference that I went to. Uh, so I have had the opportunity to meet uh, Mr. O'Malley. And so I'm very excited to be covering this. The Scott Pilgrim movie. That's going to be a very fun episode. That, have you uh, seen that yes. movie since like 2014? Oh, yeah. Like recently? Yeah, I've probably seen it. Let me let me look up the information. But go. Were you going to ask me something? No, I just was. I, I'm just curious because I definitely haven't seen it in quite a while. I'm curious if I'll still like it. <laughs> I watched it in 2019 and 2020. Um, it held up quite well. Like it probably okay, like interesting to interesting. To in hear. my mind, I was this. I was like, this is a five star movie. Uh, like going into it back then, and I am probably more like. It's a strong four to soft four and a half, which I think is unavoidable with a film whose tagline is an epic of epic epicness. Yeah, that is really the kind of thing that I'm thinking of where, like, not to say but that I, it, like, invented, like, video game references and, like, you know, that, like... And being epic. And being epic and, and that sort of, like, fetishization of nerd culture. It, like, fetishization, I guess, isn't even really the right word, but, like... I guess like unironic celebration of, <laughs> of nerd but culture. I, but I, I think also, and you know, we'll, we'll certainly get into this on the miniseries. Certainly. But I, I, I don't think that you know much in the same way that Scott felt or not Scott. Um, five hundred days of summer. Mm-hmm. I think it is a bit of a five hundred days of summer. Right. Where it's like the nerds that like that movie are maybe don't not like fully about. grasping like <laughs> what the ending is about. Well, maybe. yeah, I can't, I can't wait to talk about the comic at least because the, yeah, the exactly. comic is like a master class in like teaching people not to be like, I'm such a Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> You're right. Exactly. And, and I think, I think the movie, I mean, certainly to my mind, and maybe we can get into this more on the episode, but like, a pretty foundational piece of filmmaking that like a lot, a lot of people have tried to emulate or stolen things from or things like that. Right. Also like, like what just a classic, like, like uh, looking back at the cast list 10 years later, is like, Oh yeah. What is happening in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, we are of course not going to be starting though with, with any of the Scott Pilgrim books. We will be starting no, no, no. with his first uh, original graphic novel lost at sea which I have read before, like I, I've read everything that we're going to be covering, uh, and it's all mostly good, but this is a, a little known, I would say, book that I didn't even realize existed for a long time. So we'll be starting there. It, it is his first, yeah, his, his first work as both a writer and an artist, and we can talk a little bit about his career prior to that on that episode, but this is a, yeah, this is a guy that I'm I'm looking forward to covering. Haven't revisited a lot of his stuff in a long time, but I do consider myself a pretty big fan. We will we will get to that, but next week we'll be covering the great, I assume, radioactive. 
uh, also with guest plus pro- probably multiple guests uh, no no David next no. week as you have <laughs> you have opted out of this coverage any particular reason you still feel um, like it yeah I I am like I, I debated of being a voluntary participant because it is based on a comic but I'm like this is a comics podcast and so to cover a movie even a movie by a comics creator when right. it's not not based on her yeah exactly if it was if it was another if it was the side the movie i would cover it gladly but it's it's like an unrelated work in (laughs) in my view so i'm like if you want to have people on uh go off gives me extra time to (laughs) to read lost at sea um sure but uh, but yeah, it's my like mild act of protest for the inclusion of <laughs> non comics uh, content. And then meanwhile, I'm like, why don't we do the voices or whatever that movie is called? <laughs> I, believe I suggested that uh, that you do the voices, <laughs> not me. Also, big big not me on that one. <laughs> but I suggested right. the voices, and you were like, no, we're not doing the voices. <laughs> Well, that just seems like an overtly hostile act to any listener. <laughs> Not that like it's a positively reviewed movie, but I just cannot imagine a Marjan Satrapi directed black comedy starring Ryan Reynolds. Where, it's like, and it's like he has he he's like schizophrenic. Is that what it is? He hears voices in his head. Yeah, they tell him to do stuff. I'm sure he's going to kill some people or whatever. I see on the poster that he's got a saw and he's in a painter's like suit, and there's a couple of pink. pets there with him also. And there's blood yeah, so you know, stuff. yeah. Draw your own conclusions from that. Get excited for Radioactive next week. Get really excited for Brian and Leo Malley after that. And also, we recently mapped out our our year more or less, yep. and that's uh, that's pretty exciting as well. So look forward to lots of good stuff. Yep. We're gonna be we're gonna be hitting um, some independent creators who have uh, never worked for Marvel and DC. We're gonna be hitting some um, very mainstream <laughs> creators who not only but but did did very prominent work for marvel and dc we're really i was thinking about it we're going to be getting into the like mainstream canon marvel slash dc universe in a way that we really haven't up to this point even having covered vaughn who has books that are like ostensibly in (laughs) like (laughs) yeah to the extent that runaways is in the (laughs) the marvel universe or swamp thing yeah we're gonna be we're gonna be going like elbows deep into the into the more mainstream superhero universes in a way that we really haven't had to do yet, which I'm kind of looking forward to, um, but uh, covering lots of, lots of great creators uh, and great works along the way. Some of which I've read, some of which I've been very excited to read. So get pumped, stay pumped. Uh, and we're looking forward to the next eight months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I suppose you could say that that is all from us for now. I suppose and that you, you can, you can, Follow us on Twitter at Got the Runs Pod. Waiting for confirmation. I'm not. <laughs> you need to learn. <laughs> I I I said it yeah, correctly. Great. Did then I not? I, then I don't need to confirm it. <laughs> okay, great. At Got the Runs Pod, you can email us at Got the Runs Pod at gmail.com. This is all very simple and easy to understand and remember. And frankly. I'm ashamed of you that you haven't remembered it up to this point. I'm talking to the listener here, yes, not to you, you David. You the listener. Yes. Um, but keep on listening. Happy 420. Keep on swagging out. Happy 420. Uh, but of course, until next week. To, to be, be continued. continued.
you. I tried to really push us forward on that. You did? I always slow down because I think you're going slow. <laughs> oh, oh, um. Radioactive, radioactive.